0: Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have the release of elementary OS 7.1 which might not be a big departure from the elementary OS 7 release but adds a lot of small touches. We also have uh, the first known instance of malware being uploaded to the snap store. We have a new very bad law from France that might end up banning VPNs entirely or making them completely useless at the very least. We've got the usual updates to GNOME apps, to Plasma 6, we've got some more performance improvements coming to Linux, we've got an ARM x86 64-bit emulator, and a bunch of other things. So as always, all the links that I use to make this show are in the description of the video and all the links to support the show are in the description as well. So let's jump in. So we're going to begin with elementary OS 7.1. And if you're a follower of the channel, you know that elementary OS will always have a place in my heart. It's the first distro I used when I started this channel. I had used Ubuntu before, but I started this channel on elementary, I still find it beautiful, easy to use, I love most of what they're doing with the desktop, but I've stopped using them because I just find that GNOME and Plasma move faster and provide more features and a better app ecosystem, at least on the GNOME side. But still, I follow elementary OS very closely, and they had their release for 7.1, which might just be a minor version bump, but still packs a lot of improvements to the distro, to its own desktop environment called Pantheon, and to its default applications. So first, the distro gained integration with the background and the auto-start portal. So this basically lets you uh, view and disable or enable all the apps that want to start when you log in. Uh, And this is all handled using portals, uh, which means it's relatively secure and it's a standard. Uh, So they also ported a bunch of their own applications to use that like the calendar, the mail client, uh, the task client as well. And the location services also now use portals instead of their own implementation. So everything should be modern and up to snuff. The app center Also got some updates, it now lets you know which permissions applications can access, including if they're going to require location, access to notifications, access to the famous background and auto-start portal, access to various folders, uh, but also reading and writing system settings, or even escaping the sandbox entirely, since elementary OS sort of only provides apps as Flatpak. You can install stuff from the Ubuntu repos, but graphically, you only get access to Flatpak applications. So by default, all the apps you can install graphically are sandboxed. And so if an app wants to escape that, uh, it's going to tell you about it. The sideload app, which is basically their small little helper that lets you install a Flatpak ref file, add a remote and stuff like that. Uh, It now also will display all of this information for flat packs that you install from outside of the app center. They also added some interesting new accessibility settings, notably adding some display filters that will change certain colors to others, and this should basically help people with vision disabilities like being colorblind. And since being colorblind is not a one-size-fits-all thing, like some people see different colors differently, uh, elementary has provided multiple choices of color pairings to replace certain colors with others, so legibility is maintained. And they also added a grayscale filter to reduce distraction. Now, I'm not personally colorblind, so I cannot say how well this works for truly colorblind people, but yeah, I think the effort is really good, and I think that's something, if it works at least, that should be added to a lot of desktops, because yeah, it's going to help a lot of people navigate their computer much better. They also improved keyboard navigation. Uh, They now have a shortcut to let you switch between windows of the same application instead of just switching from app to app. And you can now use more different keys when you create custom keyboard shortcuts. For example, you can now use the print screen key and and others. And in the process, they completely revamped uh, the whole keyboard settings with new settings being added as well for bounce, for slow and for sticky keys. Now, all these settings... Uh, And also the mouse settings and the touchpad ones will be matched on the login screen as well. So yeah, if you set up something that's really useful for you, you're also going to get it when you try to log in. The Feedback app, which is the little helper to report bugs or issues, got a search field so you can find the topic you want to report a bug against uh, way faster. And the App Center first start screen will now also better explain how you can add other Flatpak remotes like Flathub. Because if you don't know, Elementary OS comes with their own Flatpak remote with only Elementary OS applications. Which means that out of the box, you don't have FlatHub and you also don't have a graphical way to install the apps from the Ubuntu repo. So you have a very, very short selection of apps, like 100 or 200 apps tops. And this doesn't include any web browsers, any office suites, nothing. So it's good that they now show that, yeah, you can add other remotes and, for example, Flathub. They still don't have a one-click install option or an easy way to do it without downloading a Flatpak app from Flathub and installing it, but it's still better and more understandable. And also, they are now not compartmentalizing apps from Flathub in the category views. Previously, they were like, okay, these are elementary OS apps, and these are basically unsupported apps. I, I don't remember the term they use, but... They basically said everything that's not from our remotes is going to be lumped into a single category. They don't do that anymore. They just sort all the apps by name like like normal. Now the installer also now lets you select whether you want to install proprietary drivers or not. And the base of the distro was updated. They're based on Ubuntu 22.04 LTS. And so now they have the hardware enablement stack as well. So newer hardware should be better supported. The mail client also is better at detecting the spam folder and the archive folder. So you can now find them directly in the folders list. You can rename folders now, which is very good. And you can use touch gestures uh, to swipe an email to the right or to the left to delete it or to archive it, which is really nice. And also when you compose a new email, you can add inline attachments like images and you can create multiple custom signatures as well. So the mail client is progressing pretty nicely. Uh, The file manager also gained uh, a few more icons in its app menu. You can now use these icons to zoom, unzoom, undo, redo and you can access some of the visibility settings like accessing hidden files and stuff like that. You can also now bulk rename files from the file manager. You can share files to other devices using Bluetooth and a few other things. And the other default apps have changed a little bit. The music and videos app have a more modern appearance they also improved uh, the notifications indicator on the, on the top panel. Uh, you now have buttons on missed notifications. Previously, when you missed a notification, you didn't get the action button. Now you can have that. You can fold all the notifications from one specific app to hide them away. And the panel also has an improved network indicator with control for VPNs, for airplane mode, with nice little icons. It looks much better. And also they redesigned a bunch of pages in the system settings, just like virtually every desktop environment always does. So all in all, it's not revolutionary by any means, but it's a lot of small usability improvements and a lot of cool features that basically all bring elementary OS 7 more in line with other Linux desktops. It refines the experience and every time I look at elementary OS and an update I always want to go back to it and then I remember that like virtually no apps look at home on this distro because well everything is bit Vita now so it doesn't look right on, on elementary OS and I don't want to theme things because it breaks things all the time. So, yeah, I'm gonna stick to KDE and Orgnome because, yeah, they just have more apps that are well integrated and they don't have all the small quirks and limitations that elementary OS has, but it's still a fantastic distro. You can download it right now from their website. As always, you can pay for the distro or you can enter your own custom amount, namely zero, if you want to download it for free. Just don't forget to contribute afterwards if you want to support what they do. Now, it also looks like Linux app stores are not spared by malware because malicious apps made their way into the Ubuntu Snap Store. A bunch of reports started happening and arriving to the Snap team stating that there were some fake crypto apps in the Snap Store that landed recently, which prompted Canonical to put restrictions in place for uploading apps to their platform. Uh, These malicious apps apparently stole users' cryptocurrencies, which, I mean... Why do you use crypto in the first place? And the offending snaps have been removed, fortunately. You no, know, I, I joke, but yeah, I don't want anyone to lose their money. I don't think people who use cryptocurrencies deserve to have their money stolen. It's just that it's very obviously a scam. And so the more you enter cryptocurrencies, the more you're going to get scammed. But yeah, I mean, that's really sad for people who invested in that and got their money stolen by a malicious app. And that's also a proof of the sad state of the Snap Store, but also of generally app stores on Linux, because anyone can upload whatever they want and no one really checks on anything. These apps used legitimate applications' names, uh, so they appeared legit. This should never have been allowed. Like when you're managing the Snap Store or managing Snap apps, when you see a new upload from a big name, You look at it, you're like, oh, wow, look, there's something really cool that's happening on our store, something that's known, that has a a name that people know. You check on it, you open the app, you download it. If you don't do that, then you're not doing your job. So Canonical stated that, You will now have to request a reserved name when you upload a new Snap to the store and all these reserved names will now be manually checked to see if you should get that name and if your app is legit. Something that should have been in place from the start and I'm pretty sure is also not in place on Flathub. I'm not sure what mechanism Flathub has to control this kind of stuff but it's probably just as bad as on the Snap store. It won't affect existing snaps, so if a malicious app is already there and hasn't been reported, it will still be able to (laughs) update itself uh, or become malicious if it wasn't already. And it's not a long-term thing, because apparently this restriction is only in place for a little while. Uh, They also said that they were investigating the incident to make sure it doesn't happen again or probably to detect other potential problems. But this is why you need manual reviews on app stores, Whether it's on Flathub or on the Snap Store, at some point, someone will realize that some people download apps from there and they will try to upload something malicious. If you don't review uploads, you will let your users download some malware. There's no two ways about it. If Apple and Google have to do this for their own app stores, we are going to have to do this as well. On distro repos, it's different because you have a trusted maintainer that joins the team and adds the app. Not everyone can upload, but on the Snap Store and Flathub, anyone can upload stuff. So you need manual reviews to to check that stuff is up to snuff. Uh, You can't just rely on automated stuff, which I'm pretty sure also doesn't exist. It needs to be done. And this might prove tricky to handle for us because contrary to Apple and Google, uh, FlatHub and Snap are not making any money uh, from distributing these apps, not yet at least. And so they can't really hire a team of people to monitor that. Uh, I think Canonical has pretty much given up on uh, on even Snap maintainers. And uh, on FlatHub, I don't think they have paid employees for now to to check for applications. So this is going to be a tricky problem to solve, but we're gonna have to solve it if these app methods, uh, app distribution methods are to keep growing like they've been for the past few years. And now it's time I tell you about our sponsor, and it's Thunderbird. Uh, So Thunderbird, you know about it, it's the mail client, but it also does uh, contacts, RSS feeds, uh, tasks, and calendars. Virtually it does what you would be used to on Outlook, but it does the same while being open source, free of charge, and also getting a full interface revamp recently, which means that the interface can now still look like the old one if you liked it, but it also now can look a lot more modern with a nice header bar that you can customize with buttons for each different space of the app. You can have different buttons for the contacts list, for emails, for calendars, so you can really personalize how things look. You can change the information density, you can move the panels around to really display only the information you want, you can display tags for your emails, uh, they're also working on an Android app that will sync with the desktop client. They're really doing a lot of really cool stuff. And I didn't like Thunderbird before this update. I just did not like the interface. It didn't click with me. The new one has replaced uh, Giri and uh, and Gnome calendars for me. And even now that I moved to KDE, they have an excellent app called Calendar or Mercuro now. But I'm still sticking to Thunderbird because it's just really, really good and easy to use and simple. And you can customize it. I just love it. So, Thunderbird is sponsoring this episode of the podcast, much like virtually every episode of the podcast for the past month, which is really cool. And if you want to learn more about them, and if you want to download it and give a try to the new version, i left a link to download the new release from Flathub right in the show notes, or you can just go to their website, thunderbird.net, and download the application. Just make sure that you download it from their website and not from any other weird source, or from your distro's repos, if they have the update already. And now let's talk about my own country, France, uh, which has yet another terrible law. Well, the continuation of a terrible law that they're already trying to pass. It looks like they're really trying to be the worst developed country uh, in terms of how they would handle the Internet. With the new SREN bill that has been recently introduced, which basically is an Internet censorship law that would require web browsers to block certain websites, They're now also looking at VPN services, which might also be banned or made completely useless because some people have added some new amendments to the proposed law. About 30 lawmakers, we call them deputies, députés in French, uh, they're from parties that support the current government and they want to basically prohibit Apple and Google from distributing VPN apps in their app stores That would not be subject to French and European laws. So basically, they would ban from these app stores all VPNs that would help circumvent the censorship that they're trying to implement. And so VPNs would become completely useless, at least on phones using Android and iOS. But that's not it, because VPN providers also would not be allowed to provide access to servers located outside of the EU, meaning that even when using a VPN, They could collect some of your data, they could pass data from one country to another, and they could still track you relatively easily. And it will also make VPNs completely unsuitable to avoid geo-blocking, for example. Basically, they would make sure that everything you do using that VPN is still either under French law or EU law. And also, the French Digital Communications Authority would have a new power. They would be able to notify internet service providers and DNS providers when they find out that there's a VPN that violates this rule and these ISPs and DNS providers would have to block all their users from accessing that VPN within 48 hours. So basically they have all the means to ensure that people do not use VPNs that they don't want them to use. They also previously proposed another amendment to force social networks to ban users using a VPN in France, but only for posting content, not for viewing it. So it was very obviously a ploy to stop anonymity on the internet, or at least to limit it. Now thankfully, this specific amendment for social networks has been withdrawn because there was a lot of outrage over it, but the new one that they want is less understandable and so it's very worrying. The SREN bill also proposes to force ISPs to block various websites that the government has decided are unsuitable, and it also adds the the police can now spy on citizen phones if they are suspected of something, a part of the law as well. So it's very dystopian, it's absolutely insane to me that the country where I lived my entire life and grew up, and has always been sort of on the side of the people and freedom and being able to access what you want, and having parents regulate their children instead of having the state regulate everyone, we're now turning into a weird surveillance state. We're implementing measures that previously were only employed by totalitarian, authoritarian regimes like Russia, China, or North Korea. You don't want to be on the same list as these countries. You don't. You really don't. It's really horrifying, and I really do hope that this law doesn't get passed, but since they virtually access every single tool they have access to to force passing these laws even without a vote or even without any support from any other uh, of our parliamentary officers then uh, yeah it's probably going to happen now let's talk about less horrifying topics Uh, let's talk about gnome well some people might argue that gnome is horrifying but i wouldn't Uh, so in gnome land there are plenty of app updates as well There's Fragments, the torrent client, and it finally got a very important feature. It's got the ability to select the files you want to download inside of a torrent, something that, yeah, it it was really missing. Uh, Workbench also got an update, Workbench being the sandbox that lets you test and build stuff using GNOME technologies and GNOME libraries, It gained a visual refresh and it gained a new window to explain how to install SDK extensions that you might need to start like, well, using them and building stuff with that. There's also a new release of Paperclip, which is a small app that lets you edit PDF metadata. It now uses the latest uh, LibAdvita widgets and it supports opening multiple windows. There's also a new app called Decibels, which just plays audio files. That's it, but it looks good doing it. There's Warehouse, which is a new app that lets you manage flat packs. It's an interesting one. It lets you view all your installed flat packs, It lets you batch uninstall them. It lets you sort flat packs by remote. It lets you find the user data for installed or uninstalled flat packs and remove it. It lets you manage your remotes. It's, it looks like a very interesting one. All it lacks is basically a backup system that would be very useful. Uh, To back up all your Flatpak apps so when you migrate to another distro or you do a full reinstall, you're not losing any of your data. That would be pretty neat if they could add that. There's also Carburetor, which is an app that lets you connect to the Tor network from your GNOME desktop. Uh, They also got an update to use the latest Libadvita widgets. There's Turtle, which is a Git remote, well, Git repo management app that integrates with Nautilus. It now supports tags. And the Fosh mobile shell also got some bug fixes and he got a way to reorder the lock screen items uh, so you can place them wherever you want. So, yeah, you can insert the usual comment about the GNOME app ecosystem here. I feel like I'm saying this every episode. It's just the best app ecosystem. They just have the best apps, the most new apps. They all look coherent. That's something i Dearly, dearly missed now that I moved to KDE. Like The the, co- the cohesion and the consistency of the desktop is so much better on GNOME than on anything else on Linux. It's, uh, it's insane how good it looks when you only use GNOME apps. It's really, really great. But talking about KDE, uh, the developers have started reordering the settings once again for Plasma 6 because what would be an update to your desktop if you don't change the whole settings again? So categories have been tweaked and changed. Uh, There's a new Appearance and Style category that now includes all the Appearance settings and the Font settings as well. There's a new Apps and Windows category that includes Default Apps, Notifications, Window Management, Activities. Not sure this one makes much sense because why Apps and Windows? Those don't really have much in common. There's a Security and Privacy category which is very easy and nice to find. Uh, all the settings that are related to that. There's a new system category. Basically, you will find all the panels you already know how to use, but they've been grouped differently. Most of these categories look like they make sense and they also look like they split things up more evenly. Uh, Before you had categories that had like 10 items and some that only had two. It looks like stuff is now more evenly spread uh, all around the settings, so it should be easier to find stuff, basically. Now, on Wayland, There are also some changes for Plasma 6, uh, especially for screen arrangements and multi-monitor layouts. They will now all be handled by KWIN instead of the previous program called KScreen. This means that there will be less communication between different tools and things will be all centralized into KWIN. This should prove more robust, easier to understand, to develop and to fix issues with because it like it removes one bridge between two tools that might introduce some problems. This change already fixed three existing bugs and they're expecting it to fix a lot more as well, but it also means that KScreen is now in pure maintenance mode, it won't see any new features or any more work, which means that the multi-monitor implementation for X11 that still relies on KScreens will not see any more work in the future. So basically, if you're not satisfied with the multi-monitor implementation of KDE on X11, then either you switch to Plasma or you find another window manager because, yeah, it's, uh, it's not seeing any more development apart from bug fixes. Other smaller things include Spectacle, the screen recorder, which gained support for hardware-accelerated screen recording using the VP9 codec, And you will now also be able to change the default location where these recordings are saved. So that's pretty nice because previously, like doing a screen recording using the screenshot tool in any desktop was really bad. It was super stuttery, taxed your CPU to the max. Having something that uses the GPU is much, much better and that's very cool. And on top of that, uh, the KD team fixed 91 bugs. Uh, Some of these bug fixes will land in KDE 5.27.9, so the next small update to 5.27 while we wait for Plasma 6. And talking about waiting, since I'm now a KDE user, I cannot wait for it. There are a lot of improvements in there that will greatly benefit my workflow and fix some small annoyances I have uh, with Plasma and Wayland. So yeah, bring it on. I can't wait for February when Plasma 6 is out. Now, we also have some performance improvements coming to a lot of us Linux users. Uh, First, for NVIDIA users, you will get a better GNOME experience soon. There's a new merge request for the GNOME Compositor to add hardware acceleration through the NVIDIA GPU when the NVIDIA GPU is powering uh, external monitors on hybrid systems. So basically, you have a laptop with an Intel integrated GPU or an AMD integrated GPU and an NVIDIA dedicated GPU. You're plugging in an external monitor through to the external NVIDIA GPU using, I don't know, an HDMI port that is linked to that GPU. Uh, You're in hybrid graphics mode. Currently on GNOME Wayland, you're using the integrated GPU to render that, which means that the integrated GPU is rendering the frames, then it's passing them to the NVIDIA GPU, which then displays them through the port, which means there's a lot of bandwidth and lag and latency issues and it looks horrible and it's virtually not really usable. This should be fixed with this merge request. So basically the right GPU will be used to display the stuff on the display it's plugged into, which is how things should work, but it wasn't. So that's really nice. Uh, hopefully it lands in GNOME 46 so everyone can benefit relatively soon. Other performance improvements coming soon include more efficient anti-aliasing on AMD GPUs. It's coming in Mesa 23.3, and it will fix a seven month old bug specifically for RDNA 3 GPUs or recent AMD GPUs. We also have way faster restore times coming from hibernation to all Linux users because they switch to LZ4 compression for the data. Basically when you hibernate, it takes all the data that is in RAM it compresses it, it stores it somewhere, sometimes on the RAM, sometimes on the disk. And then when you wake up, it has to decompress that data. And decompression, moving to a new faster algorithm, will be faster. And so the resume times will be around half a second shorter on average. Of course, that will depend on your system and, uh, and its ca- capabilities to decompress uh, compressed stuff. And finally... Screen tearing made its way back to Wayland. It might sound like a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing for gaming. Uh, it's implemented in the wlroots library, which serves as a base for a lot of compositors. Some other compositors like Sway and others already have it. I think I think Hyperland already implemented it. Uh, it's it's interesting. This basically lets VSync be disabled because. Um, generally wayland uh, enforces vsync to make sure that there are no horrendous screen tearing effects like we had to contend with on x11 for decades uh, and the problem is for gaming, sometimes you don't want vSync enabled. If you're playing a nice single player title with a controller, you don't care about that latency. It's still going to be great. If you're playing a competitive online shooter, you don't want vSync because it could add a delay between the moment you see something, the moment you react, and the moment the action is done. So you might want screen tearing instead of vSync. And so this new patch, at least to WL Roots, uh, does add that. Let's hope that all major compositors like Mutter and Kwin can implement this as well for full-screen apps or for specific games. Or maybe if the application requests it, for example, Proton could have a request saying, hey, you know what, I don't want VSync, give me screen tearing, it's okay. And, And then the compositor would implement that. It would be nice. So a bunch of smaller performance improvements that are coming to virtually everyone on Linux. That's cool. Now, if you're someone who's been following closely the rise, well, the rise, or let's say development on ARM computers on Linux, for example, like the recent Macs using Apple Silicon, there are some good news coming. Uh, There's a project called FEXMU or FEXMU, not sure. I'm going to say FEX. And this one got a big update. This project aims to be, as they put it, the greatest x86 and x86 64-bit emulator on Linux for ARM. Meaning running normal, made for Intel or AMD binaries, but on ARM CPU. So basically a like Rosetta on Mac that translates uh, x86 binaries into ARM code. This is the same thing, but for Linux. The new release provides a 13% improvement in Geekbench. And apparently this could translate in performance improvements up to 50 to 65% in certain games uh, using this uh, little tool. Now, FEX might also end up integrating directly with Wine's 64-bit layer, the famous WOW, well, infamous, I don't know, the, the famed WOW64 layer, which is basically running 64, 32-bit on 64-bit uh, uh, with Wine. This is now implemented in Wine, or at least the implementation has started for this. And so it can now be native ARM code because Wine can be compiled for ARM, which means that FEX can just run the full Wine for ARM process and doesn't have to write as much of their own stuff on the side to run a Windows program, for example, uh, on ARM, but a Windows program that runs on Linux and that was made for x86. It it gets weird. Like, when you're talking about Wine and translating from x86 to ARM, what you're doing is basically running a Windows app made for x86 on Linux, uh, which wasn't the original system, and then you're translating so you're translating the windows code into wine well linux code and then this linux code gets translated from x86 to arm so you've got like a dual translation layer coming in it's weird but yeah apparently we now have all the pieces to make that work it's very interesting because it might mean that apple silicon max will be pretty nice for gaming and stuff if fex can deliver good performance Of course it means that the Azahi Linux project needs to completely finish up all the support for all these devices, which, as I showed in a recent video, this isn't the case yet. Like Azahi Linux is not uh, completely ready for everyone just yet. It can work for some people, but definitely not for me. But yeah, if you have an x86 emulation layer, then suddenly a lot of the hurdles just go away. Like you can run stuff like, I don't know, DaVinci Resolve, for example, or you can run programs that don't have an ARM binary, like some proprietary stuff like Spotify or Discord or stuff like that, if they don't have an ARM native client. There are a lot of stuff that you can do when you have access to x86, which solves a lot of problems with this compatibility. So it's very exciting. It's still a while away but it's a great project to follow. I don't know how it compares to Box86 or Box64. I don't know if they're sharing any work or if they're not even the same kind of project, but it looks like they're trying to do the same thing. So I hope they're not just duplicating work and that they're communicating with each other. Now, if you work in audio production, you might be happy to learn that Linux uh, will gain access to Studio One, which is a professional but proprietary digital audio workstation or or DAW. It lets you create music using virtual instruments, using loops and various tools and filters. Or it lets you capture audio from any source. It lets you mix and master your final result. Uh, It's something along the lines of Logic Pro or Adobe Audition, basically. And it's coming to Linux with a native version. Uh, We already had access to a few of these kind of tools. Uh, We had Bitwig, we had Reaper, and in the open source space we've got Ardour and... To some extent, Audacity, even though I don't think it's as powerful as these other ones. Uh, But gaining access to another big-name app that professionals actually use is pretty nice. So it's now only available as a beta. It only officially supports Ubuntu 23.04 under Wayland because they only provide a DEB package for now but I'm sure people will be able to translate it to something else, unpack it, run it on other distros. I'm not worried. Uh, You also need a Vulkan compatible GPU to run it and a Jack audio server, obviously, because you need to be able to plug in some stuff into your computer. There is also, for now, no official support from the developers for for that beta. They're not going to fix issues if you report them. They're going to move at their own pace, basically. Uh, If you use it as a paid customer, you're not getting support for that either and a bunch of features are still unsupported like CD burning, like uh, support for video, support for Thunderbolt and support for the graphical interface of third-party plugins which obviously cannot be drawn I guess on Linux because they don't use the same kind of toolkit. I don't know. If you want to give it a shot anyway, if you're a Studio One customer or, or not, you can just create a free account on their website, you'll be able to download the Debian package and install it. I wish they had gone for a universal packaging format, like a Snap or a Flatpak, which both have support for beta channels as well. Uh, I guess they want to have a small sample of users on a very specific distro to limit the number of bug reports. But if you, if they used a Snap or a Flatpak, they would at least have reproducible bug reports because like everyone would use the exact same application, no matter the underlying system. So... I don't know. Like, how do you release an application, uh, a, a proprietary or, or a complete app, in 2023 on Linux, and you don't use snaps or flatpacks? I don't, I don't understand it. Like, why? Like, those formats were made for these kind of applications for third-party developers that have never published to Linux that just want their app to be available to Linux users. Why would you just make a dab? Like. It's probably more complicated to make a dev than to make a pack or a snap, like seriously. Just, just make something that everyone can use, it's, it's just insane. Now we also have some vulnerabilities on Linux. The first ones affect X11. Uh, two of these date back from 1988, so they're 40 years old, and two of these from 1998, uh, so 30 years old. Uh, security fixes were already released to fix all of those. Uh, those are bug fixes for libx11 and libxpm. But it's a reminder that x11 is very, very old and that its security is really bad. Uh, apparently, a security researcher described its graphical code a decade ago as 80,000 lines of sheer terror. And just looking at that, those 80,000 lines, they uncovered like 120 bugs. N- not even like digging deep or trying to fix anything. Just looking at it, they saw bugs everywhere. They stated that X11 security is even worse than it looks. And uh, yeah, if we have bugs that date from 40 years old that no one ever noticed, no one ever fixed... Uh, yeah, and those are not just bugs, they're security vulnerabilities. So yeah, not good. Let's finish the work on Wayland and put X11 in the trash where it belongs or in a museum, if you want to be respectful, in a museum where it belongs and move to something that's actually modern. I'm not saying Wayland doesn't have security vulnerabilities, but at least it was designed recently uh, with security in mind. doesn't mean that it's safe, nothing ever is, but it's still safer than X11. We also have some more general flaws for Linux, uh, a flaw that has been existing for two years in glibc so it's more of a GNU problem than a Linux problem but since virtually every single distro uses glibc, yeah, apart from maybe Alpine Linux which is a GNU-less Linux distro, Virtually everybody else uses it, so it's a flaw that affects virtually every Linux distro. It leads to attackers gaining full root privileges on major distributions. Like I said, virtually everyone uses this. And researchers haven't revealed the code yet for their exploit, but they stated it's very easy to use a buffer overflow to execute it, and so... They say it's very likely that other people have already are already exploiting it, uh, or that other researchers will find a proof of concept extremely fast as well. Uh, the vulnerability is also adorably named Looney Tunables, which why not? Like I mean, I always like when these things are not just called like C E V C V E two X Y whatever. Like give them a funny name. It makes them look less dangerous. But yeah, I guess it's more of a GNU vulnerability than a Linux one, but yeah, it's it's GNU slash Linux, if you want to say that. It's like, when you have a problem in GNU, you generally have a problem in most uh, Linux distros as well. Okay, now let's finish this episode with the gaming news. So first, Proton 8.0-4 was released. It's a minor update to Proton. It now adds support for EverQuest 2, for Oddworld Stranger's Wrath HD, for Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic 2 or The Longest Journey and a bunch of other games that were previously only supported in Proton Experimental but are now supported officially through Proton. A bunch of bugs were also fixed, notably for Overwatch 2 which came to Steam recently, for Battle.net, for the EA desktop app, for the Baldur's Gate 3 launcher, for Street Fighter 6 and a lot more. They apparently also added support for NV API, which is like the Nvidia API for a bunch of titles, including Warhammer 40k Darktide. This generally means better support for stuff like DLSS and other things like that, but they didn't quite explain uh, what it would bring. The underlying components of Proton also all received their updates, like VKD3D Proton, that lets DirectX 12 games work, DXVK, that lets DirectX 9 to 11 work, DXVK NV API, which is the implementation of NVIDIA's API for DXVK, and also Mono, which is the .NET engine that is needed for a lot of stuff. As always, you don't have anything to do to benefit from this update, just open Steam, it's going to download the update itself, and you're going to be able to set it as the default for all your games, or to select it for games that you had enforced something else for. We also have some news about Linux's market share for gaming. It seems to be dropping again, as is macOS's market share, basically Windows is regaining the market share it lost previously. Uh, Linux market share for Steam at least, because yeah, it's it's just the Steam survey. It's not like a, a accurate view of all gamers on all platforms. It's on Steam, but I would say gamers on Linux using Steam are the majority of Linux gamers. So this market share for Linux is now at 1.63%. Windows is still at 96.9% and SteamOS is apparently also losing ground to other distributions like Arch and Ubuntu, uh, which are gaining a bit, but yeah, SteamOS is still one of the biggest platforms for Linux gaming. If you don't add up all the Ubuntu releases, SteamOS is still the most used one at 43%, which also means that AMD CPUs and GPUs keep dominating because that's what the Steam Deck runs, and probably all those SteamOS gamers Are running it on a Steam Deck, so yeah, basically everyone uses AMD CPUs and GPUs for gaming on Linux. It's interesting, it's obviously just a Steam survey, so you have to opt into sharing your data, so it's not fully representative because it's not automated, so only people who are interested in giving their data are doing so. Uh, And it's just the Steam part of gaming. It doesn't include people who might, I don't know, only buy Epic Games games and play on Heroic Games Launcher or only buy GOG games and play on that and and don't use Steam. But I would say probably 99% of people who game on Linux use Steam to do so because that's where Linux gaming is at its best, thanks to Proton being natively integrated into Steam. So this will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to learn more about one of these specific topics, I left all the links in the description. If you want to support the show, there are plenty of links in the description as well. And if you want to try out Thunderbird, the sponsor of this podcast, you can click the link in the description as well. So thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!